A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. One of the beauties of playing in the United States and representing the country is that the fans are there, the flags are going, the USA chants. It was great. I think because of uh, the team that was put together with Jordan and Ewing and Chris Mullen, these were household names. It was a big ticket. Every game was packed. At the time, for us, you know, the cool thing was our locker room was the LA Laker locker room. In, In hindsight, looking back on it, it wasn't that great, but it was still the locker room itself and the forum where we played. It wasn't compared to today's standards, but at the time, it was legendary, right? And so to be there, represent your country, and this environment was really special. And you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you make the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 112. Thanks for joining me. I'm happy to welcome Vanderbilt standout, 1984 Olympic gold medalist and 10-year NBA veteran Jeff Turner. This is a fun, insightful chat about Jeff's life in basketball. We cover his collegiate years including his first overseas trip in 1982, where he teamed up with would-be sophomore Michael Jordan. We discussed Jeff's iconic USA squad that stormed to a gold medal in Los Angeles at the 1984 Olympic Games. And of course, we do a deep dive on Jeff's NBA career, his two-year playing stint in Italy in the late 1980s, and the details behind his return home to Florida, where he became an original member of the Orlando Magic a team he enjoys strong links to today. Show notes for this episode and access to a huge archive of past episodes are available at inallairness.com. Now, onto the show. My guest today was a standout at Vanderbilt University and won a gold medal with USA at the 1984 Olympic Games. He's a 10-year NBA veteran. Seven of those seasons were with the Orlando Magic, a franchise he continues to be associated with to this day. Jeff Turner, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. I don't get to speak with folks in Australia very often. Oh, it's great to have a chance to talk with you as well, so I appreciate you making time to speak with me today. In terms of your sporting uh, background when you were a young boy, what sports were you involved with and at what stage did basketball become a primary focus for you, Jeff? Growing up as a kid, I just did a little bit of everything. I think that's guys from my generation typically did that. I always tell people my first love was baseball. Really enjoyed playing the game of baseball. That's the first organized sport that I started. Played a little first base, pitched a little center field. 
So I played that growing up, really didn't start playing basketball till I was about 12, 13 years old, but really started to get into that as well. When I was 16 years old, uh, I made the move to uh, high school. I tried out for the high school baseball team. And by that time, I was 16, about 6'5", and they had a really good team. And I remember the coach coming to me, and, and, he, and I'll never forget it. He said, Jeff, sometimes there comes a point in your life where you have to choose sports. It might be time for you to choose basketball because my strike zone was getting bigger. Uh, didn't really have the control on the fastball pitching like I did when I was younger. From then on, I went full-time playing basketball. This is at Brandon High School in Florida. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I read that as a senior uh, at Brandon High School, you led your Eagles to a 19-6 and record, and you had some great averages playing basketball. That season, you averaged 17 points and 14 boards a game. In 1980, if I'm not mistaken, you led your team to the Class 4A District 7 semifinals before falling to a team called Chamberlain. You were named to the All-West Conference Boys First Team. That transition to where you chose the sport of basketball over baseball, for example, what stands out most about that run you had uh, as a high school player? It was interesting. We were one of the biggest high school teams in the area. I had myself at that time. I was about 6'8". One of my, my good friends was about 6'5", pretty good you know, size. And then we had another guy that was a year behind us uh, my senior year that was six seven. So think about that from a high school standpoint, having a front line like that. Our problem was that while I was there, we never really had good guard play. We had a lot of young guys with potential, but they were so young. My senior year, we started two sophomores. So they would have been 15, 16 years old at the guard spot. So that sometimes gave us a little bit of trouble against quicker teams. What's interesting about Brandon was the years before I got there, when I transitioned there, they were great at their guards. They had several guys that went on to play Division One college basketball so that we finally got some size in there. It really had a drop at the guard play, but it all worked out. We had the three guys I mentioned, the two bigs. I went to Vanderbilt. Two years later, the one guy, Clyde Eads, went to Tulane, played there for a little bit. And then the other guy went to a small school called Milligan College in East Tennessee good players and everything just couldn't just couldn't get past Chamberlain there in the in the regions. I read an article also researching for our chat today. It was from the Tampa Times, I believe, and it said that you made your team's first dunk in a forty seven game span, which was two years apart from the last time that someone dunked <laughs> as a high school <laughs> player. How did you go about learning your skills as a big man, already six seven, six eight in high school? How did you go about honing your skills just prior to taking the trip to Vanderbilt? Yeah, even as a uh, high school player, never really a big dunker. So maybe <laughs> one or two in high school. So you remember every one of them. <laughs> but it was it was interesting. I was very fortunate. I had great coaching in high school. My uh, head coach, Jan Bennett, was a pretty big guy himself. He really took a special interest in me and, and really spent a lot of time working with me. I was lucky enough to go to a few basketball camps in the summer that were led by uh, really good big men coaches. A lot of that really helped in, in my work ethic. I spent a lot of time trying to get better. So that was good. A number of the schools that you ended up showing interest in before committing to Vanderbilt included Florida, I believe, and North Carolina as a couple of other choices. You initially had committed to Florida, if I 
have my facts correct and then eventually Vanderbilt would actually earn your signature. How did that come to be? What ultimately led to you signing on the dotted line there to play for the Commodores? Well, I said, let me go back and just say the North Carolina thing. I wanted to go to North Carolina. Uh, I was excited when they came and watched me play. But the one coach, Eddie Fogler, who would go on to coach at Vanderbilt later and then South Carolina was Dean Smith's assistant at the time, came to watch me play, had a great game. He was really excited. But then he sent basketball fans that follow college basketball, remember, the great Dean Guthridge, who was Dean Smith's longtime assistant, came down and watched me play. I-, I will tell you, I ended up playing the worst game of my high school career when Coach Guthridge was in the gym. Uh-huh. So he walked out at halftime, and I never heard from North Carolina again. So wow. I eliminated them very quickly, or they eliminated me. Mm. But yeah, I- growing up in Florida all my life, my uncles had graduated from the University of Florida. It was just something I was drawn to. So when they were recruiting me, I actually committed to go there early uh, in my senior year. And unfortunately, the coach that I committed to, John Lotz, was let go. And I had already visited Vanderbilt, loved Vanderbilt, but wanted to stay home. So the coach they brought in, Norm Sloan, came to visit me. He was very honest with me, told me that I wasn't his type of player, um, but he would honor the scholarship offer, but I probably would never play. As soon as Coach Lotz, the news that he was let go was out in the media, the assistant coach from Vanderbilt called me right away and said, hey, can, can we get back in? And I said, absolutely. Went up, took another visit during basketball season. I had gone on my other visit during football season and immediately realized that this was all along the place I should have been anyway. So that's how I ended up at Vanderbilt. Oh, great to hear. I'm glad that uh, that opportunity is still became a possibility for you. Now, you've got some great international experience and we'll get to that a bit as we have our conversation. I read that in mid-April of 1980, you were playing for a North Florida AAU all-star team against the British Olympic team and uh, the British held on for a a 104 to 98 victory. Uh, You had nine (laughs) points in the game that I found details about. You apparently played them a second time in the days that followed, but I couldn't find the result for that game. But we'll talk a bit more about that extensive experience you've got at playing internationally shortly. But do you have any memories of those games back from uh, early in 1980 there? It was so long ago. What's funny about that is that was considered AAU basketball, playing for Team Florida. In today's world here in the United States, AAU basketball has taken on a life of its own. There are so many teams and some abuses. Back then, we had a team called Team Florida, which I was on, that consisted of players from the north part of Florida all the way down through west Florida, but not including the Miami-Dade counties, which would be Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and that area, because it was such a big area. They had a separate team called Gold Coast. So I do remember scrimmaging the grown men from the uh, British team, I think. But that was a special time. We were a bunch of high school kids. Some of us had committed already. We had a couple of guys that still weren't seniors, weren't going to college, that had another year of high school left and everything. Just a great experience. And then later, we would go on and they held the national tournament in Jacksonville, Florida. And so teams from uh, New York and Ohio, Indiana... North Carolina would all come to Jacksonville and we played a tournament there. So it was really, you know, my first experience to see players outside of my little 
you know, three county area near Tampa where I played high school basketball. I got to play with and against guys from other parts of the state and then getting to see basketball from other parts. I've got two daughters and they played club uh, volleyball and we would travel as part of AAU and everything. We'd travel all over the country and we'd see all of these players from different parts and everything. I think that's a neat thing for kids to be able to see see other parts of the country and see other people that are playing. It makes the game, it's very realistic in that you, you grow up in a little area and you think you're the best and then you get to see other players that are so, so good. And then as, as you talked about, we're going to talk about my international experience. Then as I get into college, now I get the opportunity to see the game on a world level, which was eye-opening for me. I knew you had some international experience ahead of learning more about your career. And I was yeah, stunned at how much international experience you have over the years. found it really fascinating. That Jacksonville tournament that you're referring to, I believe you played against Derek Harper, if I'm not mistaken. So future NBA, great. A couple of names I've seen in amongst there as well. So it's just great to read about these stories through uh, the prism of so many decades removed. So speaking about your college career with Vanderbilt, uh, as a freshman, your team went 15 and 14. And one of your best victories was your first SEC matchup against Alabama. I see the smile on your face there. Your Commodores <laughs> had a come from behind win, ninety three to ninety one. And speaking of slam dunks, apparently you had a slam dunk with about twenty seconds left, which helped seal the victory. Yes, yes. Alabama was pressing a little bit and just left the big freshman kid from Florida all by himself at the other end of the floor. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. In that game, according to press reports, uh, nineteen points and eight rebounds. And I read that the crowd was apparently over 15,000 people at Memorial Gymnasium. How do you reflect back on that freshman season with the Commodores and and what was it like to play in such uh, large arenas against some quality talent who obviously would go on to to make an impact at higher levels going forwards in the years to come? The Southeastern Conference basketball during that stretch, the early 80s, was so good. There's so many great names that fans would be familiar with, Charles Barkley and Chuck Person at Auburn. Just so many, we can go on and on. But my freshman season was interesting because coming in, it was a pretty well-established team. The coach who recruited me was just in his second season, uh, Richard Schmidt. There were five freshmen, and these were really his first recruits. He had inherited, when he took the job the year before, um, three guys that had been recruited by the previous coaching staff. So we were his recruits. So we had a little bit of an upper hand that he really wanted us to play. So the preseason leading up to the SEC starting was up and down for me a little bit. But for whatever reason, that first game against Alabama, who was just loaded with size and talent, again, guys that would go on and play a few years in the NBA, for me, it was a confidence builder in that, yeah, okay, I belong in this league. I can play a little bit here. So that was fun. They weren't all good the rest of the SEC year, but we had we had some big wins, including going into the Southeastern Conference Tournament, where as a low seed, we got the number one seed and the number one team in the country in the Kentucky Wildcats, and we pulled an upset and beat them. They would go on and do well in the NCAA Tournament, but that was a huge upset for us. Kentucky will continue to be, obviously, a really... Uh, vital and important team that contribute a lot of future pros. Sam Bowie was probably the biggest name there. Melvin Turpin, who ended up going uh, 
little bit further. Charles Hurt, Derek Horde, Dirk Minifield played in the league a little bit, and a young freshman by the name of Jim Masters was on that team, a good shooter. They were stacked. Kentucky was always deep, but it was just one of those deals where everything came together for us. We didn't get much farther. Actually, we had beat Mississippi State to get to Kentucky, and then we were upset or beat. We weren't upset by Mississippi, who ended up going on and winning the tournament that year in the third round. We would have had to win four games to get through. So four straight nights, that's tough, but it was a good run. Unfortunately, based on a lot of different things, Coach Schmidt was let go right after the tournament. So the coach that I had come in and had some success with uh, was fired right after the season was over. He was replaced by CM Newton. As a sophomore, your squad went 15 and 13. And I noted that one of your wins was a, a two overtime victory against Duke, where you had a 20 point and 14 rebound game in a one point victory. Do games like that resonate in your memory all these years on, or does it become a bit of a blur when you're referring to some of those college games, Jeff? What's significant to me, like I remember back on those, it was Coach Newton's first year. This was an, obviously against Duke, was a non conference win. And we had played them my freshman year at our place. But Mike Shashevsky, everybody knows Coach K, this is only his, like, really his second year coming in. And so he's got his recruiting class at that group, which was phenomenal. Johnny Dawkins is in there. Jay Billis, people obviously know Mark Allery. Just a lot of young, very talented freshmen. And to go into Cameron Indoor Stadium, even though it was Christmas, still pretty good crowd, not the Cameron crazies that you see on television because they were on, on Christmas break, but to be able to go in there and, and get a win. The most amazing thing is my sophomore year, we had a young man come in, Coach Newton recruited by the name of Phil Cox. And he was a 5'11 shooting guard that was from Eastern Kentucky was not recruited by the University of Kentucky, but man, was he a tough player. He had two points at halftime of that game and then came out and Coach Newton started him the second half and he finished with 30. So he had 28 points in the second half of that game to really lead us to victory. I was there. I had my, my game, but his performance was incredible for a freshman in that building. And he would go on to become Vanderbilt's all-time leading scorer and hold that for uh, many years and doing it without the three-point line. He only played one year. So memories like that, yeah, from games like that uh, really stand out. Thanks for sharing these memories. It's really good to hear about your career back at this stage. Now, in preparation for a European tour that took place in June of 1982, your USA team defeated Marathon Oil in an exhibition game at Vanderbilt's Memorial Gym. Now, I read that you had 10 points, and there was another guy called Michael Jordan, I think his name was. He had 26 <laughs> points in that particular game. Would that be the first time that you played with Jordan? Yes, it was. So so that year, it was interesting. USA Basketball put together a select team, and we were going over to play, I think, two or three games. I can't remember how many of them, but Coach Newton was was the head coach of that team. So everybody came to Vanderbilt for some practices and everything. Jordan uh, had just finished up his freshman year leading the University of North Carolina to the NCAA championship with that big shot. That was what really put his name on the map when people started, this Jordan kid. So not a lot of people knew about him. We had seen him, obviously, in the tournament and everything, but it was our first 
opportunity for me anyway to be side by side with him playing in games. So a lot of fun. Not quite the Jordan we would see later on. His game evolved, but as I always tell people, the greatest competitor I've ever seen, even at that age. Yeah, you could tell early on, I guess, that um, it was going to be something pretty special. Looking at the the notes that I've got in front of me for our chat, your USA team played five games, I believe. Two of them were against European all-star teams, and then you played three against the 1980 Olympic champions, Yugoslavia. Your teammates included Jordan, of course, Johnny Paxson, Otis Thorpe, and Charlie Sitton, to name a few. Was that the first time that you'd travel overseas had never been. That was my first opportunity to go, you know, abroad and everything. That was the case for a lot of us. Had never been on an airplane going that far before. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, a little bit of a culture shock, obviously, for 18, 19, 20-year-olds going that far away. And again, you ask me things that stand out. And I, and I tell people, we had heard a lot about, like, I've been an Olympic junkie forever growing up as a kid watching the Olympic basketball tournament. and your impression of the the European basketball you see at that time was very mechanical, big, physical, lumbering players and everything. And I remember we got over there and we're playing the Yugoslavian national team. There's this young guy playing for Yugoslavia by the name of Drazen Petrovic. He's like a kid from the streets of the United States. He's got all the flash the way he handles, the way he moves. He's 18, 19 years old at that time. And and we all came away. It was like, well, this is not what we expected. And everybody knows the story of Drazen and his determination to get to the NBA and, and what he went through and everything. But that was my first experience seeing Drazen Petrovic. You're looking back, a neat thing, seeing him as a very young player. So you could tell straight away, as soon as you saw his game, that he was someone completely different? It was just different, right? Like, it wasn't what you expected. You can't tell the difference between, and internationally, the game has all come together. It's a world game now. Uh, but back then, especially the Soviet Union and, and some of the other teams, it was very robotic. There wasn't a lot of creativity, but that was not the case with him. He had unbelievable range shooting the basketball. In transition, he had flash, the no-look passes. It's, it's interesting when I talk to players from that region now, young players, there's a reverence for him. And they should be because he really he really changed the game. Absolutely. Ahead of his time, no doubt. And sadly, went way too soon. Now, I read that in August of 1982, you took part in the World Basketball Championships in Colombia. So you're jet-setting all around the place at this stage, which is fantastic <laughs> for a young man, I'm sure. This time you had teammates that included Joe Klein, Antoine Carr, Mark West, Doc Rivers, Mitchell Wiggins, and John Sunvold. Just a few of the names I read throughout the articles researching for the chat. For fans now of the NBA, Mitch Wiggins is Andrew Wiggins' father. Mm. A great player now with Golden State. That's how old we are. <laughs> <laughs> In my mind, I know exactly who all these guys are. Today's names I'm not as familiar with, but it's great that there's links where you can see that uh, these guys have gone on and their children are now playing in the league as well. It's quite quite amazing that uh, all these years have transpired. You featured in all nine games in that series and averaged just under five points a game as the USA went seven and two. You apparently dropped the gold medal game to the Soviet Union, one point loss. Doc Rivers was named MVP of the championships. Uh, when you think back to that particular trip and that experience, what springs to mind most? 
you said it right off the top. It's like all of a sudden, here's a kid that's never been out of the United States. And now I've flown to Europe. I've come back. And what happened is uh, they had put the team together for the 82 world team. Someone got ill and dropped out. And the head coach was Bob Welick, who had just finished up at the University of Mississippi. So he knew me, knew that obviously that I was in uh, shape because I had just come back uh, from Europe. Uh, and they needed another big man. So I was fortunate to be the guy that he chose. Um, I'll never forget, we did most of our practicing in Austin, Texas, which I thought was the hottest place I'd ever been in my life. <laughs> and having grown up in Florida, that, that says something. But then again, so now after going to Europe, now I'm flying to South America. I'm going to Colombia where the games were held. And again, it opens up a whole new world to you. The tournament in Bogota, the capital of Colombia and a uh, big city, uh, just, just a lot going on there. And then the tournament switches to uh, a coastal town called Cali, a uh, beautiful resort town. So again, we're all young guys just playing and just really enjoying the experience. Although at times it was frightening with security and everything. But again, a great experience for me because we're playing against some of the best teams in the world. That Soviet Union team was was incredible. And here we go again, just for you know, fans, again, this is my first look at Arvidas Sabonis, <laughs> who is another 19, 20-year-old kid, not the Sabonis that we saw as the Portland Trailblazers after all the injuries and things. This was a was a thin, just unbelievable athlete that ran the floor. Just just so talented. We're like, wow, this guy is something. So playing in the gold medal game, we were actually getting a rematch against the Soviets from a previous game. The thing I remember about that game is we're down one, about maybe 20 seconds left. We get a jump ball, win the tip, and Doc Rivers has a shot from 16, 17 feet. And I think it hit every part of the iron. Just boom, 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 boom pops out and we lose by one. But Doc was incredible. Imagine being selected the most valuable player of that tournament and not winning the gold medal. I don't think that happens very often. It's usually uh, comes from the winning team, but that's how good he was. So yeah, just another great, great experience for me and really learning the international game. Yeah, just fascinating to hear you share these recollections. So thanks for doing so. Returning back to your junior season at Vanderbilt, that was your most successful college season. The team went 19 and 14 and you made it to the National Invitation Tournament for the first time. You defeated East Tennessee State in the first round and in round two lost to Wake Forest, a team that had some future NBA players including Delaney Rudd and Danny Young. When you think back to that NIT appearance, how did that compare to regular season college versus some of the international experience you'd had? The great thing about that season, by then now, I'm, I'm a junior, so I've got a little bit of experience. We had a good senior class. We had been together. We had a really, I, I felt like a pretty successful SEC run. Unfortunately, back then, we didn't get 64, 68 teams in the NCAA tournament. We weren't good enough to get there, but the opportunity to play postseason basketball in college, that was our first opportunity for it. So, a, a lot of fun. The first game we hosted, the NIT works, but where they think they can get the best crowd. So we hosted East Tennessee State and just probably a lot better than them. But then going to 
uh, Wake Forest and, and, and playing there against, as you mentioned, great backcourt and Rudd and Young. They had a big man, Anthony Ticci, who played a little bit in the NBA. And Rodney Rogers, who was a young player on that team, played in the NBA a little bit. So they were very talented. And, and that home court advantage thing was a little bit too much for us. But it was a great experience. Prior to your senior season, you flew to Japan and played two exhibition <laughs> games. And you went one and one. One of those games was a almost a 40-point win over the Japanese All-Stars in Tokyo's Olympic Stadium. That must have been some experience for you. And then you flew to Taiwan and played in the Jones Cup tournament in July of 83, if the timeline's correct here. And Vanderbilt represented the USA in that competition. I believe you had a 20-point game in the first of that series there in a game against New Zealand. And then your squad went 7-0 and and would end up winning the title. You were one of three players from your team to be named to the Jones Cup All-Stars. So how, again, was that experience this time heading over to Japan to play? And barely 21 years of age, and you're continuing to get stamps in that passport. That's right. That's incredible. <laughs> the the travel, the, the excitement. What an honor for for our team, Vanderbilt, to go and represent the United States in this competition. It's interesting. Through the University of Kentucky, Coach Newton had played at Kentucky. A lot of connections in Japan. So that was our stopping point. We were there, get our legs under us after the long flight and the time change, obviously. So it was good playing a couple of games there before moving on to Taiwan. And again, just being able to go to a new country now this time in the in the East, just a different style, trying so many new foods. I developed a love for Mongolian barbecue. Who knew cooking on this hot stone was going to be so good? But that was one of our favorites. Um, but a great tournament. I just remember... Again, we were college kids and a lot of the, the, the players from another team, you know, especially New Zealand. I just remember New Zealand. These were grown men with beards and they were just, but man, were they, they a blast. They were their physical, very rugged team. Um, they were there in the hotel and they were having a good time and it was just fun. I think the Chinese team was uh, there. Was, I think the Jones Cup is a qualifying tournament for the different competitions coming out of there. So. It, it, it was fun. It was another good experience. And it certainly was good because we were able to take some of our young players from Vanderbilt who hadn't got a lot of time and take them over and, and get them some touches because my senior year, we were, we were really young. So it was good from that standpoint to get them a little experience before we went into our SEC season. As a senior, your team went 14 and 15 and you were named the team co-captain. You also were named the All-SEC first team uh, player. You're an academic All-SEC as well. So obviously you're studying up as well, which is good to see while you're playing your uh, hoops. <laughs> now you led this team in scoring at almost 17 points a game. You led them in rebounds, field goal percentage, free throw percentage. And on top of all that, you went for a career high 30 points in your final regular season game, I believe, at Memorial Gym versus Mississippi in early March of 84. First of all, how did it feel to score 30 in one of your final college games? And and what was the, the conclusion to your college career like from your perspective, looking back all these years later, Jeff? It was great. I, 1984, my senior year, was a, it was a good year for me. That season, again, 14 and 15, the, the, the win-loss record wasn't what we wanted. Again, we had we had been hurt by graduation the year before. I told you we had a really good senior class ahead of us. We had uh, myself and my senior roommate, Al McKinney, starting. And then Phil Cox, who I told you about earlier, that came in year behind. 
But after that, we were very good young freshman players coming in. Coach Newton put together a, a pretty good class, including uh, freshman in that class was Will Purdue, who went on to play many years, win some championships with the Bulls. But they were young still, right? Not quite ready uh, for the rigors of the uh, SEC game in, game out. But it was still being a, a leader on that team. I, I learned a lot. Obviously, I was dependent on a lot to score, to rebound. And my game grew a little bit and really gave me the opportunity to be even considered. You know, but before that, I'm not sure that I ever really thought about playing professionally. I was thinking, well, I'm just going to go to law school or something and be an attorney or something. But that year, I started getting a little bit of interest and people thought, well, maybe you can do this. And then obviously, it turned out. And again, you look at my senior year, just the greatness of Charles Barkley, Vern Fleming at the University of Georgia. We talked about Sam Bowie and that crew at Kentucky were very good. There's just so many talented players, Bobby Lee Hurt and Enos Watley at Alabama. The list goes on, just great players. I think that helped me to prepare for life after college. A staggering amount of great players uh, that were playing in that era. You left college with averages of almost 11 points and more than five boards a game. You were a member of Vanderbilt's 1,000-point club. And as we record this conversation, I think you're 28th overall in career scoring to this day, which is a fantastic achievement all these years on. I'm fascinated that you just said that you weren't sure that you were even considering a professional career or what might come following college. It's really incredible to look back on what you achieved in the decades going forwards that you weren't contemplating a career in the pros. You just don't know. Again, you you think about now, you're able to see so much basketball. Now, with all the networks and and the conferences and how global it really is, you can watch a college game almost every night. Back then, in the early 80s, you're playing in the Southeastern Conference. Hey, what's going on over in the Atlantic Coast Conference with North Carolina, North Carolina State, and, and Duke, and how they're coming along and everything. But you don't really know what's happening in the rest of the country. There are players, you're not seeing them every night. ESPN's not really caught on just yet to where they're broadcasting the Big East Conference. So not really that aware of that a little bit but not as much uh, as you are now. And then there's no social media. There's no Twitter. You can't get on and get the mock drafts and things like that. So you really don't have any idea if people are even talking about you. Like now they're talking about a kid who's 14 years old in the class of, you know, 20, whatever, 25s, maybe could be a first round draft pick. It just didn't happen like that back then. So, you know, there was a lot of unknown, even going forward with, what's about to happen to me with the Olympic trials and things like that. You're not getting a lot of feedback. Well, this is where you're about to find out how good some of these other players were. (laughs) It was not long after the 1984 season had ended in college that Team USA invited you to the Olympic basketball trials at Indiana University Fieldhouse. There was about 70 players who took part in two or three-a-day practices and scrimmages before the group was ultimately uh, whittled down to the Final squad of 12, plus a few alternates. Now, you were selected to play with Team USA at the 84 Olympics, but before we actually get to the games themselves, how would you describe the experience of just mingling with all these players? Some you've competed against, others you've probably seen for the first time. What was it like to be part of those trials, Jeff? It was really incredible. As you mentioned, there's 70-plus players from all over the country, guys you've never seen before. You've been invited, and so we're all checking into the dormitory at the same time. 
Some guys I knew, obviously, there was there were some guys there from the Southeastern Conference, guys I had played with on the other teams. You mentioned Joe Klein, and obviously John Konkak was there. So you knew some people, Charlie Sitton, you had mentioned earlier, I played on that select team with, he was my roommate. But it, it was just an amazing experience. And then we're in the Indiana Fieldhouse. So imagine we're not in Assembly Hall, this pristine area. We were basically in a student fieldhouse that was set up with, there hadn't been eight courts, but it looked like a football practice area. And all these coaches, Coach Knight, every coach in the country was there to help him make this decision. Krzyzewski was there, Digger Phelps from Notre Dame, Jim Beheim from Syracuse. It was just a who's who. They were all there. It's three a days, the first few days. We're going three times a day. You wake up, you get breakfast, you go to the gym, you come back, get lunch, you go to the gym, maybe get a little dinner, you go to the gym. Basketball, 24-7 really. And the competition, as you mentioned, you're playing against guys you've never competed against before. I'll never forget the first time I saw Michael Cage, right? Michael Cage played 10 plus years in the NBA, is now the, the voice. He's in my position as a color commentator for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He looked like he was chiseled out of stone, like his shoulders were like 10 feet wide come down to this narrow waist like that guy's a football player he's not a basketball player and so seeing him and then all the other guys it was just a really an incredible experience what an honor to be selected to be a part of that group i read about a team bonding session that may have taken place at coach bobby knight's house it included some games of pool that i believe were rather competitive is that accurate yes that happened as we had gone through the process selected the team and then we spent another you know, couple of weeks in Indiana after one evening, Coach Knight hosted a barbecue at his house and he had a pool table in his house. We're all competitive. If you win, you stay on the table and the next guy comes up. So the story I tell is that very early on, Michael Jordan lost. You lose, it happens, right? And his thing was, he was like, we're not leaving until I get back up on this table. And time's going on and we play and it goes on. And then he gets back up and he wins. And now everybody else that played pool that night had to come back up. He had to beat every one of us before we could leave Coach Knight's house. We had practice the next morning. We're all like, let's go, let's go. No, guys may have been throwing games of pool just so we could go. We had to get some rest. But that's how competitive he was. He was going to let everybody know we weren't leaving until he was the best at the pool table that night. That's funny stuff, <laughs> particularly in the wake of The Last Dance. Just a quick aside, what did you make of the 10-part the series, uh, The Last Dance? I'm sure you probably got to catch some of it or maybe all of it. Oh, yeah. Did you learn anything new about Jordan that you didn't already know or did that pretty much just cement everything that you already knew? Well, no, I, I guess my time that I spent with him, I knew about the competitiveness, the fire, and all that. That was my era. I played against those Bulls teams, right? So a lot of the game footage and everything like that, I, I was already aware of it. Bad blood with the Pistons, but I did think it was it was well done. I know there's been some criticism of it and everything, but what's interesting about it is I think it really gives young fans, right, that maybe they've watched Michael Jordan on videos and things like that, but never really watched it. I, I think especially the young players of today, I was really interested in watching on social media their their comments that they really got an appreciation for his competitiveness and not just that, how good he was, right? 
there's a reason why a lot of people think he's the GOAT, right? Because he was so talented, could score whenever he wanted to. We'll get to the NBA draft shortly, even though it took place before what I'm about to ask you about, which is USA's pre-Olympic exhibition series. One game against Indiana University alumni, which included Isaiah Thomas, interestingly, and eight further games against NBA stars. Now, your USA team won every game. In the second game of that series, you scored 12 points at Providence in a in a 128 to 106 win. How did you find those lead-up games in terms of preparing you for the Olympics and starting to gel as a team ahead of the actual 84 games themselves? I don't think there was any better way for us as a team to really prepare. I thought Coach Knight and USA Basketball did a good job of putting that together to get us opportunity to play against the quality competition, the size against the NBA players. I always tell people having now played in the NBA and understanding what those summer months are like, uh, where you're probably not in peak condition, you're not in NBA running shape and everything. We probably caught some of those players a little off guard because we were a very well coached, very, you know, very precise team. And so we had an advantage there. But yeah, I think that was a that was a great experience for us. And I think probably as as young players who at least six of us were about to go into the NBA, the other six members of the team still had a year of college left. But for those six of us, it was a great uh, opportunity to prove that we belonged. I think maybe we wanted to win those games. It was more important for us necessarily than it was for the NBA guys. But nonetheless, we played in some some pretty spectacular places, including in Indianapolis in the Hoosier Dome at the time, which was the largest crowd to ever see a organized basketball game. Yeah, there's some footage of that game on YouTube, actually. It's incredible to see the crowd just absolutely packed in that relatively new dome at that stage. 64,000 people. It was really, really amazing. A raised floor. You were really on a stage. It was interesting. In terms of the Olympic Games themselves, Vanderbilt coach C.M. Newton was Team USA's manager in 84. You played in all eight games throughout the tournament, and USA dominated on the way to winning the gold medal against Spain in, in August of 1984. Last year just marked the 35th anniversary of those games, which is crazy to think about. <laughs> Reflecting back on that wonderful achievement and, and your part in it, what comes to mind, Jeff? A lot of things. It's interesting. Those games will be remembered because of the boycott from the Soviet-backed teams. Our team was built because Coach Knight really believed that the Soviet Union would be there, that they would ultimately be there. They would not stay out of the games. And Czech team, some of the others, Yugoslavia, he really thought that was going to happen. So from that standpoint, we were ready. I think that's what he wanted. He was very close with Coach Hank Iba. Henry Iba, who was the coach of the 72 team that lost in Munich. And so I think Coach Knight was looking for a little revenge. Didn't happen, but just a great experience. The opening ceremonies, being there, being a part of that. I'll never forget meeting the other Olympic athletes that were there. Funny story. So you probably haven't read that. Maybe you have. Your research is very good. But we check into the Olympic Village, and then we're going over to the opening ceremonies they they have all these buses lined up, right? And so they're pairing up Olympic teams based on size and everything. Well, you would think that they would probably put the men's and women's basketball teams together, 
for whatever reason, we boarded the bus and the other team that was uh, then on the bus with us was the women's gymnastic team, (laughs) Mary Lou Retton and just phenomenal. Their story would be unbelievable. And they're all what, 410 maybe is the tops. And I'll never forget. There's a picture out there somewhere and it's Mary Lou Retton and Patrick Ewing standing (laughs) next to each other as a picture. But again, like we're all just there. We don't know much about the other teams or anything. I'm sure the girls didn't know anything about us and we didn't know anything about gymnastics. And then as the games are progressing, the success of that women's team, uh, the gymnastics team, and then others, Coach Knight kept us busy when we weren't playing when we were at the village. We were either watching film or we were practicing. We did have one day that we were able to get away. And John Konkak and I went over to the swimming venue. We had gone to SMU and was friends with Steve Lundquist, the great swimmer from SMU. And I, going to school in Nashville, had gotten to know Tracy Calkins, who was a great women's swimmer from Nashville who went to the University of Florida. So we got a chance to go support people we knew. But that was really it. Other than that, you were either sleeping, watching film, playing basketball until it was over. Would have played probably every game at the LA Forum. How was the reaction from the USA fans watching their national team dominate on its way to a gold medal? Can you recall just some of the reactions that happened during games or what it was like after games when you had the victories? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's the, one of the beauties of playing in the United States and representing the country is that the fans are there, the flags are going, the USA chants. It was great. I think because of uh, the team that was put together with Jordan and Ewing and Chris Mullen, these were household names. It was a big ticket. Every game was packed. At the time, it, for us, you know, the cool thing was our locker room was the LA Laker locker room. In, in hindsight, looking back on it, it wasn't that great, but it was still the locker room itself and the forum where we played. It wasn't compared to today's standards, but at the time it was legendary, right? And so to be there, represent your country and this environment was really special. I'm almost getting goosebumps just hearing you talk about it. So I can only imagine <laughs> as a player how it must be for you to, to relive those moments. The 1984 NBA draft. It actually took place before the pre-Olympic exhibition series we talked about. I read that you were working out in Hawaii, I believe, prior to the draft. Did you have a sense of what teams were interested in in possibly selecting you when it came to the actual draft day itself? The Hawaii experience actually happened before the Olympic trials. And now I think they have the Chicago Combine is where they do the scouting and things like that. Back then, they took the best seniors from around the country and flew to Hawaii. You were there a week playing against other seniors from around the country. And again, I really didn't talk to anybody. I had hired an agent by then. And so you're getting a little bit of feedback from them, but it's not like he can pick up the cell phone and give you a call, right? You got to find a landline, no email or anything like that. So your conversations are a little bit more limited with your agent. From that experience, from being in Hawaii, the only guy that really, from a general manager standpoint, that talked to me was Jerry West. I just happened to be in the hotel one day. I'll never forget, just like you, I'm a history buff of the NBA. So one of my idols growing up is Jerry West. And I'm coming down to the escalator and Jerry West is at the bottom. He turns, he sees me coming, and he waits on me and he just talks to me. He said, uh, Hey, Jeff introduces himself. You're like, yes, sir, Mr. West, I know who you are. <laughs> and he said, I've been watching you. I really like you. I could see you 
fitting well with our team, with the Lakers. And that was it. Their team is pretty set. And so they're going to be picking in the draft from very late. And wow, that'd be great. First round, second round. So going into the draft, I have no idea who's interested in me, if I'm going to be picked. It was really a, a, a crazy, crazy time. <laughs> It's fascinating to think back on, and I love that Jerry West mentioned there as well. It's uh, awesome to hear that he afforded you the time to have a quick chat and mention how the Lakers were possibly looking at picking you. It must have been eye-opening, to say the least. I believe that you guys were in um, Bloomington on the draft day, June 19th, working out for Team USA. What was the atmosphere like, given that you were one of six players on the USA roster who would be first-round selections? Again, 1984... We're not quite there from a television standpoint uh, the way it is now when the NBA draft comes, right? With ESPN coverage and everything like that. It was in Madison Square Garden, but big part of us, as you mentioned, we're in Bloomington, Indiana. So what they did was they took us to a local television studio in Bloomington, and they put us all in a conference room at a big table. We had a television. Obviously, we could hear Commissioner Stern with the picks goes along like what we thought. So I'm sitting there with Michael Jordan and Sam Perkins, Alvin Robertson, Vern Fleming, Leon Wood, and me. Kim Olajuwon goes first. The Portland Trailblazers select Sam Bowie. And now Chicago is on the clock. And so the Chicago Bulls pick Michael Jordan. So what happens is they come into the room and they escort Michael out. And so he goes into the studio to sit in front of the camera and then he's having a conversation on air with Al Albert and Lou Carnesecca, the head coach at St. John's at the time, was doing. they were doing the, the broadcast. And so they'd ask him questions and everything. And so then Michael goes out in the waiting room. He's got to wait for the rest of us because we're all got to go back to the dorm or get something to eat together. Sam Perkins, obviously, is, is taken next by Dallas. I think Alvin Robertson maybe goes to the San Antonio Spurs at 8. Leon Wood, I think, is picked at 10. And so those four guys are out of the room. So it's just me and Vern Fleming. We're sitting there, right? And so the the draft keeps going and everything. And they get to the 16th pick uh, is Utah. And they select John Stockton out of Gonzaga. And so Vern and I are sitting there. And the next up is the New Jersey Nets. I don't know anything about New Jersey. Vern is a New York kid, right? Maybe New Jersey will select him. The only thing that I'm going through my mind is I have no idea when I'm going to be picked. What if I'm not picked till the second round? Nobody knows, right? I figured Vern would be picked earlier, but I just didn't know. He didn't know either. He didn't know when he would be picked. I say to Vern, what do you think Michael's doing right now? And Vern and I laughed and it was like, he's sitting out there wondering when we're going to get there because he's hungry. He wants to go eat. (laughs) The 17th pick, the New Jersey Nets select Jeff Turner out of Vanderbilt. I'm like shocked, right? I have no idea. There is a chorus that I can hear over the television, a chorus of boos, right, from the crowd that's there because they don't know, right? And we talked about it, no television. They don't know this kid out of Vanderbilt University. They haven't watched me on television and everything. Um, So I go do my thing. And then Vern is picked the very next pick. 18th pick by the Indiana Pacers. So we get out of there. I've heard stories. I don't remember it, but it makes sense to me. I think Coach George Raveling had brought us there. We all went to McDonald's and ate hamburgers before we went to uh, practice later (laughs) that evening. 
But that's it. That's how it worked. It was that simple. Not all the getting dressed and shaking hands with the commissioner and things like that. That was our draft moment. It's a stark difference, isn't it, between uh, maybe 20, 30 years later, the pomp and ceremony that is now involved with the draft? Now, being on the other side, the broadcast side, I've locally covered the draft and everything with Adrian Wojnarski and the Woj bombs and everything like that, <laughs> like two days before who every team's going to pick pretty much. So you got a heads up back then. It was like, I, I can just, you know, picture the war rooms are on the clock and the teams are like, well, what about that guy? <laughs> you know? And so New Jersey needed a big forward. And I guess I was the best one on their board. Great to hear you sharing these stories. Thanks so much for your time as well. It's really good to speak with you with this amount of time and do a deep dive on your career. You mentioned shock was one of your main emotions when you heard your name. What did you start thinking about in terms of, okay, now I'm going to be heading to New Jersey to start my pro career? What was going through your mind at that stage? Well, because of where it fell in the Olympic experience, I didn't really have time to worry about that. That's true. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I knew, <laughs> I knew yeah, I'm going to get there. It was interesting. You mentioned the pre-Olympic games in Providence. Being from Florida, I had seen it before, but two guys that played, I believe, in that game, I think it was in Providence, were Daryl Dawkins and Buck Williams, who would both become my future teammates in New Jersey. So getting a chance to see them up close and personal was awe-inspiring. <laughs> they were so big. But you just knew you had you know a lot of work to do, but you just waited. What was funny is after the Olympics, I got home and New Jersey called me and said, we're going overseas. So I went on a trip right away with them. We played two games in Israel and then two games in Italy before coming back to the United States. I actually missed that. That's one of the things I didn't catch in my research. Ah, there you go. What was that like heading over to Israel? So again, another quick trip internationally. You're about to become a pro player. Do you remember much about either the time on the court there or just what the culture was like um, at that time in 1984? We're in Tel Aviv and, and playing. You know, they, they gave us an opportunity to do a little bit of touring and see some of the, the Holy Land. And so that was great. But the basketball part, that the Nets team that I walked into as a rookie was a veteran team. Man, they had guys that had been in the league maybe five to 13 years. They hadn't had really a rookie in a while. They were not excited about going and playing <laughs> these games, but they're representing the NBA. So I, I don't know that they took it as serious, um, especially in Israel, because we played two Israeli teams. We played the Maccabi Tel Aviv, which is historically one of the best teams in Israel's lost that game. I remember Daryl Dawkins at one point was just tired of playing and the referee made a call on him. He actually picked up the official by the waist and was laughing and just ran down the court carrying the official. And the crowd was just going crazy. I just remember thinking, is this what the NBA is all about? Uh, Is this what's going to be with Daryl Dawkins night in and night out? When we got to Italy, now it's an exhibition thing. They brought the Phoenix Suns over. So we were playing another NBA team. And then that got a little bit more competitive because there's a history between the two teams that I didn't know about and everything. So those games were very competitive. It was a good experience. Aside from the aforementioned Daryl Dawkins and Mike Jaminski, your New Jersey team had veterans like Otis Birdsong, Michael Ray Richardson. Buck Williams. Yeah. Michael Corrin. Yeah. Albert King. It was a good team. 
the one thing that you didn't mention on this trip overseas and while I'm there, my future wife is planning our uh, wedding and everything. So I get home and I get married. We load up and go to New Jersey. And so we're two young newlyweds coming out of Nashville, Tennessee. And, uh, and those guys, man, they were veterans. They treated us so well. And, and I'll never forget that. When I see them now, I run into Otis Birdsong and obviously Jaminski and O'Corin, but even Michael Ray Richardson. There's so many laughs. I was just a kid going into that grown man world. And there were a lot of laughs about how bad I was at the time and then <laughs> where my career has gone and what I'm doing now. It's just a lot of fun. And the playing while I was in New Jersey for three years was not my best, but the atmosphere that being around those guys and everything was some of my favorite memories. In your rookie campaign, it was probably your best season as a team. You made the playoffs before getting eliminated by the Pistons in the first round. Stan Albeck was your coach for that season. And one of the more famous games of that year was Christmas Day of 1984. I hate to bring up bad <laughs> memories, but Bernard King dropped 60 points uh, on you at Madison Square Garden. However, you did win the game. You played against a multitude of all-time greats uh, throughout your career. I suppose it's a silly question. Do you remember the 60-point game and what was it like to be at MSG to see Bernard King turn it on like that? Uh, see, in today's world, see, we would call that probably – fake news, right? <laughs> and, and here's what I'm saying. So here's what happened early in my NBA career, right? I'm coming in, in college and on the Olympic team, I'm a, a center power forward, right? I don't play out on the perimeter that much. So I get to training camp with the Nets and our two small forwards, Albert King and Michael Corrin get injured. Well, we've got no place to turn. So Stan Albeck says, well, you'll play that position the NBA in the 80s, right? Think about the Eastern uh, Conference back then and, and the people that were playing the small forward position. You look in Boston and there's Larry Bird, okay? In Philadelphia, it's Julius Irving, right? Down in Atlanta, it's a young guy by the name of Dominique Wilkins. In New York, it's Bernard King, right? So that becomes my matchup. So I started that game. I like to say that even though the paper said Bernard King scored 60 points against Jeff Turner, I probably only got about half of those scored on me <laughs> because I was in foul trouble part of the game anyway. So I probably only played about 25 minutes. But people ask me, one of the hardest guys I've ever played against, and I always put him at the top just because he was so fast, right? He ran the floor. He had an unusual release to his shot. He shot on the way up, so you really couldn't block his shot. He was just a scorer. He got to the free throw line. That game, we ended up winning. And the great thing, I think Michael Ray Richardson in that game scored 30-plus points. He was unbelievable. So it really got down to Michael Ray versus Bernard towards the end of the game. Incredible to be a part of. And the great thing about it, you may have this number, I don't know. In that game... I forget what the final score was, but it was 120. There were only three three-pointers taken in that game. It was just a different game, right? It was at the basket. But yeah, every Christmas, NBA TV runs back that game. So it's like one of those things where I will never disappear because I will always be <laughs> Jeff Turner that Bernard King scored 60 <laughs> points against in the Madison Square Garden on Christmas. <laughs> That's funny. But you guys did have the victory, so you do take the, the spoils at least of that. The score was 120 to 114, so you were spot on with the, the score there and only a couple of 
three-point baskets, which obviously beggars belief compared to today's game, which everybody's shooting threes basically once they get across half court. Pretty stark differences, but I'm glad you still got some fond memories uh, of that game, <laughs> even though Bernard lit everybody up that night. <laughs> we tried everybody on him, just an aside. We actually ended up guarding him with a guy by the name of George Johnson, who was another veteran player, but he was a great shot blocker. He was a seven-footer. And we ended up just putting him on Bernard a little bit, just so he at least have to shoot over a hand because nobody could stop him. It was incredible. After a round one playoff exit in 1986 and a 24 and 58 record in 1987, Dave Wall had replaced Stan Albeck as coach. Your time with the Nets then came to an end. What do you remember about leaving New Jersey and then how did the opportunity to head overseas and play in Italy come to be? Again, and I'll be the first to admit it, my time in New Jersey, you know, probably for my draft position was, you know, disappointing, right? My third year there, they had changed management. New GM had come in and, and, and basically he was trying to rebuild and, and just basically told me I wasn't part of that process. So I had loaded everything up again, not knowing what the future held. By this time, my wife and I had bought a place. Our summer home was in Nashville, Tennessee. And going back with the thought that probably this is my opportunity to do something else. Now my life goes on, the NBA is over. And I got a call from an agent, not my agent, but an agent that I had met through other NBA players who told me that there was a team in Italy that was really interested in me. We weren't sure, but well, he said, how about this? They will fly you and your wife over here, no charge to you. You come, take a look at it, talk to the coaches, everybody else, see if you like it. If you don't, if you decide it's not for you, you've got a free trip to Italy. So we were like, sure, let's do it. It was a beautiful time of year. I think July, maybe. We fell in love with the city of Cantu in Italy, which is in the north part in the, in the Como region. It was a small town, a good history, a lot of success, really good Italian players. So we made the jump. It was the best thing from a basketball standpoint for me personally, because it allowed me to be a little bit more involved in the offense. And, and it was like going back to college. That's what I liked. It was like top 20 college. My skill set really got back to where it needed to be in those two years before coming back to the NBA with Orlando. Was that unusual to have an agent that wasn't actually yours reach out to you about that? It, it was. It was interesting because my my agent at the time apparently was looking, but he didn't have a lot of experience over there. And and this agent, his name's Warren Legary. Warren is people that follow the NBA now. Warren is the guy that really put together the NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. He represents mostly NBA coaches now. Mike D'Antoni is one of his clients from Houston. But anyway, he was a hustling young agent who spoke fluent Italian, was well-connected in Europe, and he got wind that this team was interested in me and that my original agent had made some calls, so he knew I was interested uh, in potentially going over there. So was it unusual? Probably. But I tell you what, people come into your life, right, that have a major influence, and he was one of those guys because if he doesn't pick up that phone and call me, my NBA career is probably over. I'm not sure that I make the jump to another 
lower level Italian team or somewhere else, Spanish league or something like that at the time, unless we go over and, and see this for ourselves. Thank you for talking about the details behind that as well. Yeah, his name is definitely familiar to me, even over here in Australia. So you head back to the States for the 1990 season. You spent the rest of your NBA days with the Orlando Magic. You were an original member of the new expansion franchise. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. However, I read that you worked out for both Orlando and Minnesota in May of 1989 before you signed a free agent deal with the Magic in July. What led to you becoming a part of the Magic and what was that experience like trying out with the Timberwolves as well? It was interesting uh, at that time was after two seasons of playing in Europe, again, I, I played on a fantastic Italian team. We played in a lot of postseason tournaments. We competed for the Italia Cup every year. I think I was considered one of the better players in Europe at the time. At least that's what people uh, told me. I kind of felt like, and Warren Legary agreed, that at some point, I needed to get back to the NBA to, to give it another shot. And your research will probably tell you, even though I went to high school in Brandon, Florida, I grew up in the Orlando area as a kid. All my family, you know, my mother, my grandparents, everybody still lived in the Orlando area. For me, that was on my radar. Here's a new team. If I could get there, what a perfect situation that would be. Although it didn't have to just be there. So when I came back, after my second Italian season, Warren, the, the Minnesota Timberwolves had been scouting Europe and everything. They had a free agent camp with a lot of guys that were from overseas, had played in the, the Continental Basketball Association. They brought us in for three or four days to work out and play. So he felt like, even though I wasn't thrilled about going to Minneapolis, Minnesota, he felt like this would be a uh, a great opportunity for me to you know go through the workouts and because it is a small community everybody talks to one another uh, so I went up there and then from that and from scouting the Orlando Magic were putting their team together as well and John Gabriel with the draft coming up one of the names that they were looking at was Vladi Divac right for the draft my last games in Europe, we played in the Cup of Korac European tournament, and we played Vladi Divac's Partizan Belgrade team in the finals of that tournament. And so most of the scouting tape that they had were from the two games that we played against them. So John and Pat Williams had an idea, having been in Philadelphia when I was picked by New Jersey, they had seen me play on these tapes and everything. So they invited me in. It was different. It was just a workout. It was uh, me by myself and the coaching staff just put me through some drills and things like that. And then they decided to offer me a contract. So that's how I got here. <laughs> it's such a small world sometimes when you think about it, but to be playing against Vlade over in Europe and then they just happen to see the scouting tapes of him. They see you playing as well, and then you end up signing with the team. Yeah, it, it is incredible. I think back through the years when we first started, I was talking about my international experience and, and the impression we had of European basketball and things like that. Well, now, having played three years in New Jersey, so five years later even, right? Or, well, I guess six or seven because I was young then, but I'm playing in Europe. 
and the game is completely different, right? Everybody is playing a different style. And, and so now I'm traveling and play against Vlade Divac, 19-year-old center out of Partizan. He's the big guy over there. I get a chance to play in that same tournament leading up to playing Partizan. We play the team out of Split, Croatia, who happened to have a young Tony Kukoc and Dino Raja on their team, right? So we had to beat them to be able to get to uh, the finals. I think it was the semis. We beat Yugoslavia split. So the players that you run across, that you see through the experience, we played a, a tournament in Kiev in the, in the Soviet Union, and Alexander Volkov was their star. And uh, a couple of years later, he would be drafted by the Atlanta Hawks and come over. The European game, the international game in Australia, just the influence on the NBA is incredible now, the way it's grown. Yeah, absolutely. is. It's uh, great to hear these uh, stories and recollections. Your first regular season action with Orlando was their home opener versus the Knicks in November of 89, and it was also the team's first win. You had two points, two boards, and one steal in four minutes, courtesy of basketballreference.com, <laughs> for what it's worth. What do you remember of that first win and the response from the crowd? You can tell that the Magic fans were just a different breed. They were and still continue to be massive supporters of their franchise. So what was that like to take in that first victory of the franchise? It's interesting. I, I tell people because I grew up in, in Central Florida, right? And we never had professional sports. Growing up, you rooted for in, in Florida. For me, Philadelphia 76ers with Julius Irving and those old Boston Celtics teams, the, the New York Knicks with the Busher and Walt Frazier and Earl Monroe and Willis Reed. You didn't have a home team, so you just adopted a team. In baseball, the closest thing was Atlanta with the Atlanta Braves. In football, we were Dolphins fans because they were our state team. I knew that it was going to be a challenge for Orlando to support a professional team. We really didn't know what it would be like, but I think the thing that I take away, obviously only playing four minutes in that game. So I got to witness the crowd quite a bit because I was sitting on the bench. So the enthusiasm, what was great about those early years was, you know, it's an 82 game season. So you got 41 home games. Now you'll find that people, they'll buy season tickets, but they'll, they'll sell part of their package for the most part, not everybody, but people will go to 10 games because it's hard, right? Back then, if you bought a season tickets, it was the same people in those seats, all 41 games. So you kind of got familiar with the crowd. They were familiar with you and just fun. It was a really cool environment and it was new and it was packed every night. And, and, and we weren't even very good. We ended up winning 18 games that first year after winning seven in the first month of the season. So this last part of the year wasn't very good, but they were still there right with us every night. You were led by Matt Gukas the first four seasons he was the coach. In late February of 91, you had a career-high 28 points against the Golden State Warriors. You went 10 of 13 from the field for 131-119 victory. Dennis Scott had 35 points in the same game. And all these stats are thanks to basketballreference.com. One of nine <laughs> times in your NBA career that you went for 20 or more points. Do you remember this 28-point outing at Golden State? You were playing against the run TMC Warriors. That particular stretch, it was our second season. Matt Gukas was trying different lineups and everything. And what was interesting about that Golden State team is you mentioned the run TMC. Their bigs at the time generally 
played on the perimeter. They played differently than everybody in the NBA. Originally, they were one of the first five-out teams where the, the bigs would stand out and shoot threes, whether that was Paul Mokeski at times, Tom Tolbert, I think, was there then. That's just the way they played. For me, coming into the game, it was a game Maddie felt comfortable having me in the game. During that stretch uh, of that season, the second half of the season, Scott Skiles and I were running a lot of side pick and roll. And it was just a really good combination. We were in a nice groove. Scott had a nice way of using the screen and getting into the paint, drawing the big defender. I said pick and roll. With me, I never rolled to the basket. I would pop to the perimeter. I became a good perimeter shooter. And so he would draw my defender and kick, and I was wide open. And so it was one of those nights, 10 of 13, where everything's going in. And then, like anything, if you're going to have a career high, if you're going to score points, great scorers, when you have a big night, you get to the free throw line. For whatever reason, they fouled me (laughs) quite a bit. Uh, And I think I got there maybe 10 times, 8 of 10 or something like that. But I was able to get to the line as well. So. That's kind of how the end of that season went. We stayed with that look. I think through the last 42 games or something, I averaged 10, 11 points a game during that stretch just because we ran that set quite a bit and teams were having a hard time defending it. That season, your team improved considerably and went 31 and 51 before regressing in 1992 and you went 21 and 61. But that all changed. There was a reason for that, though. (laughs) <laughs> go ahead no no it was a reason because what you're about to say would it all change like we needed ping pong balls in that season <laughs> absolutely and in the 1992 nba draft the ping pong balls definitely went your way the magic had the number one pick and would end up taking uh, some guy called shaquille o'neal uh, at number yeah, one just some guy just some guy named shaquille o'neal he was still getting a fair bit of hype with lsu at that stage how quickly did you think that Shaq was going to be an absolute all-time great Pretty early on, I love to tell the story. By the time Shaq got to us, I've played now six years in the NBA. I played against you know good players, big players, guarded some big players, and everything. So the day that he signs his contract, there's a bunch of us that are in town. They have a little luncheon, so we get to meet him. He gets to meet us, and he said, "I want to play with him." There were six of us. Well, there's the little recreation center next door to the arena. Is where we practice. We we're like, well, yeah, let's go. We've all got stuff in the car. Let's go play. They were all guards except for me and Shaq. And so I thought, yeah, no big deal. I, I got this. <laughs> so the very first time that he catches the ball, he catches it in a post-up position, left block, catches it, and he spins so fast. People don't realize how quick, how fast he was. He spins and just goes up and dunks it so hard. The whole back was shaking. And I had done everything I could to push him out. Back then, you could use your knees and your hands and you could push. I couldn't push. He was that strong. And when he did that, I thought, okay, we, we got something here. There's something <laughs> special about this young guy. And then on top of that, you throw in his personality, which is larger than life. And it wasn't very long before the Orlando Magic were a must-see just because he was there. I love these stories. Thanks again for sharing them. Uh, you guys went 41 and 41 in the 1993 season and just missed the playoffs. In 94, Brian Hill had replaced uh, Matt Gukas' as coach. And then you went 50 and 32. Uh, you met Indiana in the first round of the playoffs and you played in 68 games during that season, but weren't on the playoff roster. 
What was it like to be a part of the team during that regular season, but to miss out on the first postseason experience? Even though it was a round one loss, it must have been an incredibly exciting time in Orlando at that stage. Oh yeah, it was, and, and it was disappointing. We had gone forty-one and forty-one, and by the luck of the bounce of the ping pong balls, the lowest odds, we get the number one pick again and get Penny Hardaway that season. So now we've got Shaquille O'Neal, Penny Hardaway. Still Dennis Scott, Nick Anderson, Scott Skiles is still there. The part about that season, the most disappointing is throughout the season, Brian was tinkering with the lineup, trying to figure out which was going to work the best. About February, he decides to stick me back into the lineup. So I'm starting alongside of Nick and Dennis, Shaq and and Penny. And... I'm playing pretty well at that time. We're playing on April 17th, right before the playoffs are about to start. We're playing the Chicago Bulls on national TV. I'm playing well. I just knocked down a three-point shot from the left corner, running back down the floor. They kick it ahead to Tony Kukoc, who's going in for a basket. I'm trying to cut him off to get there. And Shaquille has the same thought. He's going to get there. So all three of us collide. I'm down low (laughs) and for whatever reason, play is over and I can't stand up. I try to stand up, but I can't. And it turns out I have torn my ACL in my knee. So my season is over right as we're getting ready to go into the playoffs. So very disappointing because it was exciting. The opportunity for the first time to get to play in a series. And then on top of that, to lose in the first round after having such a great year and all the expectations, it was really disappointing for us as an organization. That must have been incredibly tough. In terms of your on-court career, was that the most difficult pill to swallow in terms of your pro days in the NBA? Yeah, because I had been very fortunate. I had not had any major injuries, right? The rolled ankle occasionally, bumps and bruises, but nothing, nothing that required surgery and extensive rehab. So that was tough to not be a part of it because I had worked so hard and I was playing and I was contributing and I was a major part of it, what we were doing. So that was a, that was a tough one. You had a chance to earn those playoff stripes over the following season. Uh, in 1995, the Magic went 57 and 25 and you dispatched of Jordan's Bulls in the Eastern Conference semifinals. What do you recall of that particular series given the hype that surrounded Jordan's comeback after 18 months away from the game? I think the big thing about that series was the year before we were swept by the Pacers out of the first round. Then that season, we had signed Horace Grant, Brian Shaw. We were young, but we were pretty loaded. The series before that, beating the Boston Celtics, uh, being the last game in the old Boston Garden. For us, that was huge because that was our first playoff series win. So now we've got to play Chicago Bulls. Jordan is coming back. The whole two, game one is back and forth. We get the great steal from Nick Anderson. We win game one, and it's like, okay, yeah, we got a shot in that series. They win game two. We go there, win game three, four, and then we win five at home. So we're going back up there with a chance to close it out. I remember in that series, because of the matchups, the way they were playing, Tony Kukoc was playing the four spot with Horace Grant being gone. They really hadn't solidified that spot for them yet. And so Tony was playing there and Brian didn't think that was a good matchup for me. So I hadn't played much at all in that series. And in game six, we go in there 
And Horace was unbelievable in that series. He shot like 65% from the field. They dared him to shoot the basketball. He made them all. But in the third quarter of the game six, he gets hit on the hand and suffers a break in one of his fingers or a dislocation and can't go. And Brian, Brian looked at it and called my name uh, and I hadn't played everything. So I played like between the third and the fourth quarter, almost uh, eight straight minutes there where we actually went and, and the Bulls were up 14 at one point and we closed it and actually scored the last 20 points of the game to win and close out the series. So personally, the fact that Brian had that much trust in me to put me in, in that situation. And then the fact that not only had we beaten the Celtics, but now we had closed out the Chicago Bulls in their building, gave us a lot of confidence going into the Eastern Conference Finals and the Pacers series. The end of game six, Horace Grant is lifted up above <laughs> all your teammates. He's obviously celebrating wildly and the Chicago fans Probably not all that happy to see Horace celebrating so much after the Bulls got eliminated. What do you remember of that moment and then getting into the locker room to celebrate the victory? It was exciting and we were all happy for Horace because we saw what was happening on the floor, right? Like they were double teaming Shaquille every time and they were doubling off of Horace. Phil Jackson, they come up with this game plan. They were challenging him. He was their former guy. So we all knew what was happening. So we knew how special how well he had played. He was the MVP in that series. You can look at Shaquille and Penny, but if he doesn't step up and do what he did in that series, I'm not sure it goes away. We wanted it to. So very exciting. I did enjoy in the last dance, though, seeing it from Michael Jordan's perspective and Scottie Pippen's perspective. It's like that losing that and seeing Horace being lifted up drove Michael Jordan <laughs> on his comeback to be ready. Just as an aside, for those the following year, the Magic were swept in the Eastern Conference Finals <laughs> by the Bulls, 4-0, led by Mr. Jordan. He got his revenge. Horace did get injured. To his credit, he was injured early on, I think, in Game 1 of that series. I think his elbow. Yeah. We'll get to that in just a moment. Indiana took you to seven games in the Eastern Conference Finals. Great series. In 95, yeah. yeah, fantastic series and some really memorable games and some classic finishes. You ultimately prevailed and won the East, you went back to the NBA Finals where you'd meet Hakeem Olajuwon and the Houston Rockets, arguably at their peak of the powers, uh, and they'd sweep you in four games. You missed only three games of the 21 postseason matchups in 1995. What are your memories of the Eastern Conference Finals and NBA Finals generally, Jeff? Well, the Eastern Conference Finals, I, I tell people – we had showed the classic games in the Orlando area, Fox Sports, Florida, while the NBA has been away, but they only showed the wins, the four wins. But other than game six of the Indiana series, where Indiana blew us out in Indianapolis, the other games were incredible, like great finishes. It was an amazing back and forth chess match between Brian Hill and Larry Brown, the adjustments we made. Indiana was big, both Antonio Davis and Dale Davis. I played a lot in that series because we just needed size on the floor whenever Horace would go out. There were times where Indiana would play Dale and Antonio Davis at the four and five, and I would come in and give Shaquille a break, and Horace and I would play together. By that time, now I have really become what in today's NBA 
language would be a stretch four. And I'm a three-point shooter. That was part of my job was to space the floor for Penny and Nick and Dennis and Shaquille. So I got a lot of good looks in that game because I was being guarded by bigger players that wouldn't come out on the floor. So it was just a great series. Those of us that played on that team, we don't talk about the finals against the Rockets. There are not a lot of good memories from being swept by the Houston Rockets (laughs) in the NBA finals and the attention around that and playing against the great Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler, Hall of Famers. There are great stories in there, but it's just like we were on such a high after winning the Eastern Conference finals. And again, I go back to the fact that Shaquille at this time is 24, Penny's 23, Nick and Den, we're young. And we had done it so fast. I think all of us look at it and say, wow, if we could have just kept it together and really grown. It had not been that place where we had to get past. We had gotten past the Pacers who had beat us. It just came so quickly to us. And we probably weren't ready for it. That's why I purposely tried to say, what were the Eastern Conference Finals like and the NBA Finals? <laughs> I was trying to couch it a little bit for you. Very good. Getting into 1996 briefly, that was your last season in the NBA. You were severely affected by injury. You played 13 games in total for that season. This is the reason for my Vancouver hat in the video. (laughs) In February, you were traded by Orlando to Vancouver, but you never played for the Grizzlies. But this led me to a great quote that I uncovered from the, the March 2 edition of the Palm Beach Post. Oh, no. It says, Jeff Turner was traded from the Orlando Magic to the Vancouver Grizzlies last week. Quote, I haven't had much contact with Vancouver. I called and told them where to send my checks, and I asked them if they could send me a couple of those Grizzlies T-shirts, end quote. So <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you actually make it to Vancouver? But more importantly, did they send you some T-shirts? No, I didn't get a T-shirt. I think one of your, the hat you have or something like that. Ah, okay. Most importantly, the checks did keep coming. <laughs> Obviously, you're saying it in jest, but... I know, tongue-in-cheek things, but... What's interesting about that whole time, as you mentioned, I had never really been injured, rehabbed after the 93-94 season and gotten myself back to where I was playing consistently in that NBA Finals run in 94-95. In 95-96, a lot of high expectations. Again, we got everybody back. We signed John Conkak to be our uh, backup center. We were using Tree Rollins, me and Horace as a center behind Shaquille in the previous season. So we had really solidified our roster and high expectations for me in training camp, come down wrong on the knee and torn a little bit of meniscus. So I have the surgery, rehab, come back, probably came back too quick, wanting to be in, played the 13 games, as you mentioned, and then suffered in practice another. So I tore meniscus in my left knee, same knee I'd had my ACL. Two times and had two surgeries in, you know, less than what, four or five months. And I talked to the doctors and they were like, really, there's nothing left we can do. I got a second opinion from another doctor in Tennessee. And he told me, he said, Jeff, you've got no meniscus left. He said, think of this as like, you've got a set of tires on your car and you maybe get 50,000 miles lifetime out of these tires. He said, your knee is like at 40,000. And he said, you got to decide what you want to do with the other 10,000 miles on this knee. And I was in such pain. I was so disappointed that I basically went to the team and said, look, I can't do this anymore. But I was still on the roster. 
And at the trade deadline, John Gabriel was still working because he had some big decisions to make in the upcoming season because we had a big guy by the name of Shaquille O'Neal is going to be a free agent. We had to adjust the roster, make money. So he made one of the very first salary cap trades in NBA history. And I was traded for another injured player by the name of Kenny Gaddison, who had career-ending back surgery just recently. So basically, the Orlando Magic and the Vancouver Grizzlies traded two players who would never play the game again (laughs) for salary cap reasons. And so somebody just flippantly asked me, oh, did you even go to Vancouver? And I was like, no, they knew I wasn't coming, right? I was never going to come. And then I said, but I did call them and tell them, give them my address, (laughs) tell them where to send my checks. (laughs) But that's how that came about. But (laughs) I appreciate you sharing that. But I like your hat. Very nice hat. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I love it too. Following your retirement, you became a radio analyst for The Magic for almost 10 seasons. I'm curious, how was the transition for you to become an analyst? It was not something that I had ever thought about doing. It's not something I went to school for or anything like that. In the early days of the Orlando Magic, we were a small organization. and So when we traveled commercially, we were all together. And that included the broadcast crew, trainers, and things like that. So our radio guy, when I was playing, was David Steele. And he did the games on radio by himself. And after the trade deadline, I wasn't going anywhere, wasn't going to Vancouver, but the team still wanted to keep me in the organization. So they were talking to me about different opportunities within the organization. And David calls me and says, I think you would really be good on air. And I just want to touch base with you. He said, if you're interested, I'd love for you to sit with me the rest of the year. So the 95-96 season, after I had stepped away from playing, these are my teammates. He thought I would give his listeners a different perspective having me there. And I said, well, I never really thought about it, but we'll try it. So I did the last 10 home games and travel with the team. I just did the home games on the radio. And then I did all of the playoffs, the run to the Eastern Conference Final with the Bulls, did all of those games. And David and I had been friends. So the chemistry was really good. And they seemed to like it. So after leading into the summer, after the season was over and everything, they said, Jeff, we thought that was tremendous. David wants you to continue. Would you be interested in continuing on? So not knowing what the future would hold, I was able to transition from being a player. I think the hardest part when you leave the game is what do you do next? The things you miss, not necessarily being on the floor and everything, although that's part of it. You miss the camaraderie of being in the locker room, being around the guys. So I was given an opportunity to do something new that I found interesting and challenging, but yet I was still around the team. I went to practices because I knew them. as These were my teammates. It really made it a very seamless transition for me to do that. So it, it was good. And so, I, yeah, I did it for nine years. After that first year, moved to television. And then Dennis Newman, who is the magic radio play-by-play guy, stepped in for him. So Dennis and I did it for uh, eight seasons together. Now that I'm doing television, I'm back working with David Steele again. It's been a fun journey. When you and I talked about when I graduated from college and I didn't even think about playing the NBA, I never would have thought 
that, uh, what is it, gosh, 35, 36 years later, that I'd still be in the NBA doing something. It's an incredible journey. It really is. It's fascinating. And I appreciate the amount of time that you've given me today to talk about your career. Basketball Digest had a regular feature, which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. We've covered a lot of your career. We may have already touched on it. Is there a single game that stands out above all others? I think from my NBA career, the one that stands above it is Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Pacers. It was a grueling series. Indiana had beaten us at their place, just crushed us in Game 6. And they, uh, I think, felt like they were the favorites. And we came back, and the the energy in the the old Amway Arena was just electric. I say to this day, it's the loudest building I've ever been in. Like, you couldn't hear. And to win that game uh, and the crowd, the reaction, you, you think about it, we are a fifth year of a new franchise, and we're going to the NBA Finals. The, the fans, what they had been through and a loud celebration and everything. To me, that was uh, just the highlight. It was a game I'll never forget. Just the way we all played together. Shots were going in. Everything was great. And, and to win it, knowing, gosh, this is what you play for to get to the NBA finals. It was really something special. I can only imagine, but I can hear it in your voice even all these years later, how <laughs> important and how much it means to you all these years on. The last question I'd love to, to throw you away, is there any particular significance to the jersey numbers that you wore during your career? I believe you might have wore number 31 in high school, 25 with the Commodores, USA in 84, you had number 15. With the Nets, you wore number 35 and number 30, and at Orlando, <laughs> you wore number 31. Most of those are via basketball reference. That's a great, great site for all this information. <laughs> That's good. That's good. What significance, if any, is there to some of those jersey numbers? As a player, like you get comfortable with something. So you you mentioned in high school, I wore number 31, right? So when I got to Vanderbilt, there was already a player that was wearing number 31. So I had to pick a new number. Well, what's available, right? It's like, well, here's these are number. And it's like 25. No, it sounds good. I'll take number 25. That's good. So when I got to New Jersey with the Nets, well, 25. At that time, the New Jersey Nets had one number retired, one number, and it was the number 25. <laughs> Bill Melchiori, longtime ABA net, was the number 25. And then I thought, well, well, 31. Well, you can't have 31 because Michael Corrin uh, wears number 31. <laughs> Well, what's left? What's out there? <laughs> well, you can have the number 35, da da da, and everything. I was like, I'll take 35. That's fine. So, my rookie year, I wore 35. I felt that it wasn't a great year for me and everything. So, I thought it's got to be the number, right? <laughs> Young man, don't know any difference. So, I went in and I said, Hey, what other number? Because the year before, somebody had worn number 30. And I said, Can I have the number 30? I'll wear that. So, my last two years in Jersey, I wore the number 30. Just because I was looking to change my luck, the 15 on the Olympic team, it was almost like it was. Uh, I was just like, here, it's fits you. It's your size. It <laughs> yep. didn't really matter to me. When I was in Italy, I wore the number 11. Right. So when I came back to Orlando and they were throwing out numbers again, it's like, okay, well, um, 11. No, so and so is going to be number 11. Okay. Well, what about 25? You know, 25 is what I wore when I was at Vanderbilt. Well, we just drafted Nick Anderson. And for Nick, right, like it was a special. It had significance to him. One of his 
uh, high school teammates had been uh, killed and wore the number 25. So that's what Nick wore. No problem. Well, hey, I wore 31 in high school. Do you have 31? <laughs> yeah, you can have 31. So I am always 31 for the Orlando Magic. <laughs> I'm glad to hear the story behind that. Thank you for sharing. And and Jeff, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure to have you on the show, to have a chance to speak with you for this period of time. I really do appreciate it. I wish you continued success with all that's ahead in the years to come. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the fact that you're a historian of the game and you're sharing interviews and stories with people. Uh, I think it's important that people that are fans of the game really get a feel for where it comes from. So I uh, appreciate what you're doing. Oh, thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks again, Jeff. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Send me an email. Audio clips are welcome. In all airness at gmail.com. Worldwide, the show now has 169 ratings on Apple Podcasts with an average of four and a half stars with 90 reviews across all providers. Thanks as always for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode of the show. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please do tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are truly worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply email me in all at gmail.com. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. Search for In All Airness, three words, on your podcast app of choice. The show is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Overcast, Android, and more. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, in Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAnnis. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash InAllAnnis. Join me next time for another edition of the show.